0: I think what you should do is find the person responsible for this mess and see that they're punished.
1: It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell, a double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Mans. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together we are Manson and Mitchell in your ears for the hour. Glad to be there and glad to be of a Saturday working once again with tall guy Nathan. Nathan Miller is our producer. He's at the board. Hello, Nathan.
2: Good morning, and Gary and Suzanne. And Normally I'd come on and say something, but there's so much going on this week in all worlds and all news. What do you want to know about?
0: Uh, your shirt. <laughs> I still have hopes. Uh, you know, we're not yep.
2: out yet. Tuesday yep. was devastating. It gave me nightmares when I went to oh. sleep. And But, you know, it's a series. And baseball, there's no time limit. It's just getting to the end. So there's we no can time still limit, win. And it
0: goes on forever. <laughs> we can still
2: <laughs> win three games in a row against the yes. uh, almighty Houston Astros.
0: So are they playing the
2: next three games in Lourdes? (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure everybody in entire Western Washington or Pacific Northwest is going to be putting a shoe on their head. Uh, What is that about anyway? So on last week on Saturday's game against the Blue Jays, they were down. I can't remember. It was like 7-2 or they were down by a lot of runs. And one of the fans decided, well, we need all the help we can get. I'm going to put a shoe on my head, my head as a rally cap. And the whole point of rally cap is to wear a hat in the silliest, most unconventional way possible as like a superstition uh, to help your team get more hits and come from behind. So the fan did that, and they became uh, like a historic comeback. Is like six runs. They came back late in the game and beat the Blue Jays so they could advance to the divisional series. And that's how the rally shoe came to be.
1: The rally shoe. Now, anthropologists of my acquaintance would call that magical thinking. (laughs) (laughs) There, Who knows? That may crop up in our conversation today, Nathan. But best of luck to the Mariners. As I've been saying, I'd love for them to be the Cinderella team. And uh, the Astros have something to say about that. And in the National League, I, I note that the Philadelphia Phillies who had they've been blowing hot and cold, but at this point in the year, just the right time, they're hotter than a two-dollar pistol.
2: They are definitely coming from behind and beating those Braves and even the Padres. They're up two to one against the Dodgers. With their, what, 111
1: wins during the regular season? yeah. Now, Have you ever heard of a team, for example, that's won even
2: more than that, but didn't go to the World Series? It seems like it was one team <laughs> Do we have that... to keep bringing up the <laughs> negative news about them? Come on, positive thinking here, Gary. <laughs>
1: we do need that. I lived through that. Uh, 116 wins and you don't go to the World Series. Come or on. even out of the Division Series, for that matter. I mean, they were out in the first round. It's you know, it just shows you that having all those wins during the regular season gets you to that that point where the energy spikes or it should be if you're going to succeed and it doesn't always work out. You can play great in April doesn't mean the same applies in October. Mm-hmm. So Enough we'll see what baseball. happens.
0: We're going to talk baseball next well, week. That's why I'm hoping the that the Mariners can baseball. All right.
1: That's right. Next week we have Kirk McKnight coming on. It's it, He's about all the sports. He's a magnificent guy, and we'll be talking to him next week and we'll take this up. Now we're going to take a turn toward the spiritual, the metaphysical, and we are pointing our faces east when we talk to Ramananda John Welsh.
0: To uh, New Jersey. John, John <laughs> yes. Welshans, Ramananda John Welshans is the author of at least three books When Prayers Aren't Answered, Awakening from Grief. And One Soul, One Love, One Heart, The Sacred Path to Healing All Relationships. A much sought after speaker who offers lectures and workshops on terminal illness, grief, and other topics. He has been helping people deal with dramatic life change and loss. He lives in New Jersey and his website is JohnWelshans.com. And we are welcoming our friend from New Jersey here for the 13th visit to Manson Mitchell. So welcome, John Welsh. It's good to have you with us today.
3: Well, it's great to be with both of you. It's always a delight. Thank you.
1: I, in my future, John, I, I see you and your lovely Maureen, Suzanne and myself, and maybe a, a ragtag contingent joining us at the finest Italian restaurant nearest your home. I think that we should make a date of it.
3: <laughs> I'll start rounding up the ragtag contingent right away.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and you and Maureen are okay because the, the main reason, if I may say, why we couldn't get together was because of your wise insistence, really. And thank goodness for that, that we just uh, take it easy and maybe just uh, you know look for another occasion because you and Maureen on your travels to California, I believe, came down with COVID.
3: That's right. Yeah. Well, we came down with it when we got back to New Jersey, but we think it must have been, we must have uh, contracted it in California. Yeah.
0: And don't you want to cancel that contract?
3: (laughs) Well, you know, uh, we're fortunate to say for Maureen, it was pretty mild. For me, it was, I, I wouldn't call it mild, but I've had many flus that were worse it just was a little uncomfortable and mostly a lot of fatigue and you know body aches and fever and so on so but I'm back feeling great yeah good you look good Good too this this is excellent
0: well we have a lot that we want to talk to you about today how's New Jersey
3: (laughs) how's New Jersey at the moment it's quite beautiful and um, as is often the case, I think, when we talk, because it's usually around this time of year, the fall colors are starting to manifest. And um, last weekend, we were up in New England, and the fall colors there were just extraordinary, the best I've ever seen. So um, New Jersey is, is New Jersey.
1: <laughs> uh, we, we got uh, quite a good taste of it. There in uh, your neck of the woods and loved uh-huh. our trip there. And I can't wait to return. I've made new friends there. I would call them dear friends at this point. They feel more like family. And it was a New Jersey couple that introduced Suzanne and myself to the Big Apple. They uh-huh. drove us out. We We hit town, had an Italian meal in Lyndhurst, New Jersey. And then uh, all of a sudden, our host said, Well, I'd like to drive us to Times Square tonight we we'll go through the Lincoln Tunnel, and then we can go see Times Square. <laughs> I was not prepared for that. There's something <laughs> about events in your life, John, where you have the relative security of orderly travel through a tunnel. You find, in this case, Midtown Manhattan, a place to park your car, which was pretty easy for us to find on a Friday night. I thought that was remarkable. And then you're walking your way downstairs, and you open this solid door. And as soon as you open to what is outside it's like it reminds me of Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz where everything was in black and white and then all of a sudden she steps into this world of magnificent color and wonder and that's what it was like for me like oh my god I am now in the Big Apple and you enter it and then you're into the flow the swim of this vast tide of life
3: yeah yeah it's an amazing place as you found out this was your first time to visit New York City First time, we went in
1: three times, Times Square on a Friday night. there And uh, I was just stunned. But you really can't be prepared until you've experienced it. It becomes a singular event when you just step into all of that, all yeah. of that energy, all of that intensity. And then we went to, of course, we went to visit Lady Liberty and to, uh, to Ellis Island on our second foray. And the third time, we went to Washington Square Park and then on to Greenwich Village. So we, we saw you know scratching the surface of manhattan but we hope next time to see some of the other boroughs
3: wonderful well uh and you probably saw that not all of manhattan is like Times square that's sort of like it's very much like las vegas <laughs> yes. nowadays it was always quite mm-hmm. extraordinary but now more than ever yeah
0: we, you mentioned a couple things, um, Gary, talking with John here, and one is about the events in your life. And that was one of the things that we were looking to talk to John about today because of John's particular um, perspective. You and I think of John, and I hope he thinks of himself that way, as being well-versed in Eastern philosophy while he is well-grounded in a Western culture. And when you were talking about orderly and things like that, we received some news yesterday of um, an untimely death of a young 43-year-old gal. And I was saying to Gary this morning, I would like to know what John thinks about comparing and contrasting the grieving process between Eastern philosophy and Western thinking. What, what would be a, a similarity and what would be very different about how that is viewed, the, the, just the grieving process itself? Is that too big a question?
3: Wow. That's a great question. It is okay. a big question, but it's a great question. Um, well, I would say, first of all, that for the most part, the traditional elements of Eastern cultures are very much aware of death. And that is something that is present in their lives, throughout their lives, so that, you know, children are, um, I don't want to say forced, it's just part of the the, um, culture that death is very present and here in western culture we've done all we can do to hide it away to sweep it under the carpet pretend it doesn't exist and you know i've been working on this issue since really the 19 early 1970s when i first met elizabeth kubler ross and um, i noticed something very interesting that uh, she who was also um indulging in the study of eastern philosophies and spending time with ramdas and stephen levine she was opening up the conversation in our culture and saying you know we die that's the way it is i mean every human being that is born is going to die and the other side of that is we don't know when and we don't know how and that is the uncertainty that is inherent in human life. The Eastern cultures embrace that uncertainty, and our Western culture has endeavored to deny it. And um, what came to me pretty quickly was that in denying the reality of death, because we think it will make us depressed. <laughs> you look at our culture, which denies the reality of death to this day, very much. Um, you know, it's it's a little better than it was 50 years ago, but um, there's still an awful lot of denial. And um, we have an awful lot of depression and anxiety. And, the elements of Eastern cultures that are most um, impacted by their philosophies don't seem to experience that kind of anxiety and depression. Now, what is that about? To me, it's the realization that if we know we're going to die and we don't know when, our thinking changes, our priorities change. We start to look at this life much differently. And I began a practice about 30 years ago now. I've been meditating for over 50 years. I met Elizabeth uh, about 43 years ago. And um, the practice is every morning when I meditate, as part of my morning meditation, I say to myself, this could be my last day on earth or the last for someone I love. In light of that, how do I want to spend it? What do I want to fill my mind with? How do I want to treat people? You know, Do I want to be kind and loving or do I want to be cranky and nasty? Do I want to be generous or do I want to be selfish? And if you look at the possibility that this could be the last day of your life and how you would spend it, oh my goodness, everything becomes so alive and vibrant. So I think that even, you know, the use of the term, I'm not saying this is a criticism because it's very common and it just would flow out automatically, but the use of the term an untimely death, is not something that would necessarily be um present in eastern culture in other words that doesn't mean that there would be no grief about a death or a loss but there's much more of a recognition that um it's going to come someday inevitably and you know there's no way to know when and there's often no way to control that so um I think those are the biggest differences. I think that ultimately people in the East are, in my experience, much happier and more at peace than we are, where we're constantly running away from death and trying to pretend that we're younger than we are. And, um, you know, we could look at aging, for instance, as a means of reminding us that we need to really pay attention and embrace every day we have on earth.
0: You know, John, I I call that arguing with the truth when, you know, the truth is that every single person will die. We're born, we age, we die. And as you said, we really don't know the day or the, the time of that or the circumstances of it, but to constantly try to bury that idea, to argue with the truth about, what is really so um puts us in that predicament that that uh gives people anxiety because they're not it isn't that they're not just facing it it's that they never have that in our culture where people somehow i don't know what happens to them but they they never you know think about that it would it would seem to me it would be healthier to, to make that part of, of our culture. I can remember I was only about nine years old when my grandmother passed away, and the whole family went to her funeral, and and you know, I was under 10 years old. And I I looked at her in the casket and she looked somewhat like my grandmother, only she wasn't walking around and talking to me. She was just in a casket. There there was almost, uh, I didn't have all of the adult stuff attached to her death. I was able to just look at her being in that casket and wondering, you know, what was going to happen next and where were we going to go and, you know, the cemetery and, and, and everything, all the events around there, I was looking at a little bit more objectively, but having grown up in this, this, um, place where you don't talk about it, you don't think about it, you don't plan for it is, it doesn't prepare Uh, children and then adults for what is so natural. And and if you're young enough, you can actually be informed and educated in a way that it doesn't freak you out.
3: Right. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I mean, I remember looking back on my life and although I had the unusual experience of being almost dying when I was three years old, I had polio. And uh, the doctors had said there was nothing they could do that my parents needed to acclimate themselves to the reality that I was gonna die. And if I didn't die, they said, you know, there was a 99% chance that I would die. And if I didn't, a 95% chance that if I lived, I'd spend my life in an iron lung and uh, many of your uh, listeners may not even know what an iron lung is you know it's like a, a personal respirator the uh, sort of an archaic one that machine that breathes for you and um so i had that in my experience very early in life and yet i can remember my parents and family and other adults really not wanting to talk about the subject of death. And whenever it came up, it was like you had said something rude, you know? And so I think what happens is that children who are surrounded with that grow up thinking that death is something that we don't know what it is, but it's so bad, the big people won't talk about it. And that's pretty scary. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, I, I think about the connection between that and that kind of experience, John, and thanks for sharing that, and religion itself. That's one of the things that occurred to me a, a bit earlier today, and I thought, I'm going to talk to John Welshons about this. I was raised Catholic, and I can remember a point in my life, Now, and I'm not saying it's when I was eight or nine, though I was starting to ask questions. I was just afraid to voice them, but inwardly, I was questioning the basis of my Catholicism. Is this stuff for real? And how come I feel guilty so much of the time? Why do I feel unworthy so much of the time? And it got to the point, John, where when we would all stand and recite the Apostles' Creed, I found myself, I laugh now, I found myself saying, well, I agree with that part. You know, yes, I know that that Jesus suffered and died under the authority of Pontius Pilate. Yes, that happened there. But I don't know that he descended into hell for three days there. I don't know that that his body and blood, which is a real trigger for me, this idea of transubstantiation, which I believe is a uniquely Catholic concept, that when you take the Eucharist, you are receiving in a mysterious, but nonetheless literal way the body and blood of Jesus there. And there was this little smart aleck in me going, so you're asking me to be a cannibal. What what is this supposed to be doing for me? I don't think that this is real. It doesn't square with any part of reality that I experience on a daily basis. And I knew a lot of Catholics there. And I'm going, that's that just doesn't seem to add up to me and being a good Catholic. I got to be, guilty over the fact that I was questioning these certitudes that were handed down to me in catechism class in parochial school, which I attended for six years. I'm still recovering. And so there are many, many other people I have met who either abandoned religion, whether in the organized form or simply had a different philosophy. Maybe they even became agnostics or atheists, or they changed religions. But the key point for me was and is that You reach a point in life, if you are mature enough, if you are aware enough, you get to choose your own beliefs and then watch them, if you're alert, become operative in your life. So somebody who's born and raised a Catholic dies, a Catholic's going to live a certain way. But what if Buddhism appeals to you? What if Hinduism suddenly makes sense to you? Once you accept that, it begins to operate and become functional in your life. I've noticed that and of course and I'm begging the question I'm wondering if you have
3: noticed likewise. Yes. <laughs> I have. Amazingly. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, my own um course of um internal study and internal uh experience um I went through a period of time when I was a teenager I was extremely depressed and anxious. And largely because my parents were both very serious alcoholics and our home was kind of like living in a hell realm. If they were drinking, it was just terrible. And um, I confronted this thing. They, they were both, we were, we I had been raised in the Presbyterian church. And my parents were both elders in the church, but it didn't seem to be impacting their lives very much. You know, they were unhappy, angry, miserable, you know, um, it was just a mess. So I started around the age of 12 to say, you know, the same question you were asking, perhaps under different circumstances, but what is this all about? You know, what, what it, how is this positively impacting people's lives? And ultimately, when I was 16, I remember I was in church on Easter Sunday, and I was noticing that all of the people in the church, not all of them, but most of the people who were in church on Easter Sunday didn't come to church the rest of the year. They only came on Easter Sunday, and it was basically, apparently, to show off their new Easter clothes. And I just, at the age of 16, thought this is bogus and um, i got up and walked out of the church and never went back and that began a period when i was basically agnostic because um i always believed that something created this universe and something sustains this universe and my perspective when i was a 16 year old and 17 year old was whoever that is i wouldn't want to be in their shoes (laughs) i wouldn't want to be responsible (laughs) for But then, you know, when I was 18, I started to have some very interesting mystical experiences. And I started to see spirituality in a whole new way. And that led me to the Eastern teachings because the Eastern teachings understand that internal connection with the one or the divine or the the Buddha or whatever you want to call it You know, they understand that. They have had thousands of years studying that, experiencing it, talking about it, and many different paths for how to get to that experience. So that was what led me to the East, is they understood something much deeper than most of the teachings in Western spiritual traditions did. Not all. You know, there are, even in Catholicism, there are some very comparatively small sects like uh, St. Francis of Assisi, St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila, uh, more modern times, um, Thomas Merton. Uh, You know, some wonderful mystics who really get it, but they have to be careful about saying that they really get it because the church will accuse them of heresy. So it's an interesting situation that we're in.
0: Gary mentioned the word operating systems, and I wrote it down because, as I have said many, many a time on our radio show, too many times to count, all religions are man-made. And so in my mind, all the religions are various operating systems like you would have in a computer you have different kinds of computers you have different operating systems on your computer and so what will what's going to work for one group is going to be their system and so they look at another group and they say well you don't have the right system obviously because you know it's not working for you but our system works and so you know here we are again you know, being very divisive because there are many paths to the one. But in those many paths, people like the like all the flavors of ice cream, it, it's like you have the one that works for you, mint chocolate chip, but but somebody else likes strawberry. And, and so getting that reconciled, it, that they're all okay that they're all paths that they're all legitimate and maybe none of them are the right path or maybe none of them are legitimate I think is a a, a really good philosophical question. And what I was saying to Gary earlier was that um in fact I, I'm not even sure it was this morning, but people need to have their, their their philosophical spiritual ideas validated to create the community to know that they're okay otherwise if you start questioning your beliefs and you're out on that skinny branch by yourself that's a very lonely place to be so i think we congregate in these operating systems and reinforce one another. Well, we got the right flavor here. We, we, you know, we've got Rocky road here or, or whatever the, you know, peach flavored ice cream, we've got the right one so that people can kind of feel safe together in their beliefs. It's, it's hard to be uh, really alone because, you know, ultimately we're not but it has that appearance living on earth is that we're by ourselves. There was a lot there to unpack, John. You just talk about whatever you want to talk about. Uh,
3: That was beautiful. And, you know, well, a couple of things came into my mind while you were talking, Suzanne. The first one is something that Thich Nhat Hanh said, wonderful uh, Zen Buddhist uh, monk and teacher who died last year. Um, He said, uh, basically i may not quote this exactly but we come into form in order to overcome our sense of separateness Mm. in other words our purpose here on earth is in his view to overcome that sense of aloneness and to start to realize that everything is connected not just human beings but we're connected to the earth and the earth is connected to the universe and we really should take better care of all of that. So, you know, that's one thing. And I think that, um, I was looking at this actually when I wrote When Prayers Aren't Answered, I was looking a lot at the, what it is that creates this, this dynamic in religious groups. And, you know, I guess for semantic purposes, we can make a distinction between religion and spirituality. Um, But in religious groups, um, I remember one of the things that came to me when I was back in the early 70s, a student of comparative religions at the University of South Florida in Tampa, and then later when I was in graduate school at Florida State in Tallahassee, um, the recognition that almost all religious groups think that they are the only way. <laughs> yes. Yes is what you were talking about. Yes. And I came to the conclusion not a conclusion but my my intuitive sense about that is that because being a human being living on earth is so complex and confusing and can be so lonely as you pointed out um and we want to have a certainty, some kind of certainty that we know what we're doing is the right thing. And I think what happens in religious groups, it happens in political groups too, but in religious groups, it's um, the sense that if we all get together and agree that we're right and everybody else is wrong, as long as there are a lot of us, we'll feel more comfortable, (laughs) you know? And I just think that's very, very interesting. When you watch how groups start to form around one single spiritual principle or religious principle, um, you know, and then they start fighting amongst themselves. You know, I'm thinking, I I always remember when I'm talking about pe- recovering Catholics, Gary, I always remember when I was growing up as a Protestant, you know, we were taught that the Catholics were going to hell because they didn't really understand Christianity properly. And they, you know, had this Pope and all and, and you know, it's everybody needs somebody to look down on, <laughs> unfortunately, and that's really, If we could see that one of the teachings, the the most precious teachings that runs throughout every spiritual tradition is that at some level, the embrace either through love or through understanding that we are all one, that we are our brother's and sister's keeper. Um, The Dalai Lama likes to say his religion is loving kindness. That's a nice religion, you know, kind of a fun religion. Uh, but other religions say, no, I have the only way. And if you don't embrace it the way I embrace it, then uh, you're wrong and you're going to hell. I'm sorry. I have relatives who believe that about me. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's a it's a fascinating thing. But I think um, if we look at, our religious practice. If we go to the depths of what the religions teach, we'll see that it's all very much the same. They teach love, they teach kindness, they teach generosity. And, um, you know, one last thing I'll say is that one of the interesting things to me about Buddhism is that the arguments between different sects of Buddhism are minimal to non-existent meaning that like the dalai lama loves to meet with people from other buddhist traditions because he's always fascinated to know what it is they do differently than what he does and why and he doesn't judge it he just is, he finds it fascinating
0: on
1: that let's take a break that's the right attitude to have too for about any uh, anything you do in life it seems to me ramananda john welshans our special guest today always delighted to converse with him and we'll do some more of that on the other side of a short break we're manson mitchell and we'll be right back
3: hi everybody this is anson williams
1: from happy days and i'm so excited to tell you about american road it is the best car travel magazine in the world they have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary we could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please, get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure.
2: Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell.
0: on Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Garnett Schulhauser to join us for a little metaphysical Q&A from across the border to the north.
1: On Saturday, Kirk McKnight takes us out to the ball game as we discuss baseball announcers, baseball parks, and baseball teams. October Madness rules. Bringing you fascinating talk since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash 1150 KKNW.
0: Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, John Welshans, also known as Ramadana. John Welshans. John, if people would like to connect with you, uh, what is your website? I know you've got a, a Wednesday night meditation. You have things going on that maybe our listeners would like to know about. So go ahead and spill it all now.
3: Okay, thank you um well the website is www.onesoulonelove.com all spelled out or they can use my name it'll get to the same place www.johnwelshons.com that's j-o-h-n-w-e-l-s-h-o-n-s and uh we do have most wednesdays an online meditation gathering which uh is just lovely We've been doing it since the pandemic began and have decided that it worked so well, we're gonna keep doing it. And um, then there are, as time goes on, a few more in-person things that are cropping up. There are other online programs. This coming Friday, I'm doing a uh, nursing conference. We're talking about spirituality in nursing. And uh, that's sponsored by the Institute for Spirituality and Health in Houston. And then I'm, the following week, I'm starting a two-week Awakening from Grief class, which is based on my book of the same title. And uh, that's gonna be held in Montclair, New Jersey. So that one is in person. If you're in Northern New Jersey or would like to come visit, you're most welcome. And then we'll probably do something like that in the first part of the new year, uh, but online. So uh, we've got new things coming up all the time. They're listed on the website, www.johnwelchons.com. And uh, also my books are available from the online booksellers. There's uh, Awakening from Grief, When Prayers Aren't Answered, and One Soul, One Love, One Heart. So thank uh, you, John. Yeah. Thank Very you. Well said. Uh, I know that we get into the depths
1: when, with, John Welshons when we do the marketing piece and finish it 45 minutes into the hour. <laughs> 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 I'm telling you, we get into some stuff, absolutely. I'd like to go back for a moment, John, to the song we played as The Drop, pretty much in your honor, really, when we Uh, came back, Within You, Without You, George Harrison's inspired song for the Sgt. Pepper album. What I discovered only in recent years is that George, in learning the sitar and achieving a, a... great proficiency, if not the virtuosity of uh, Ravi Shankar, learning from that very famous gentleman how to play it there and and how to achieve nuance. And yet when he chose Within You, Without You as his song to include on Sgt. Pepper, what was allowed by the uh, dynamic combination of Lennon and McCartney, uh, they saved him that space on the album and he put Within You, Without You in there he played that song deliberately at a slower pace than you might expect if you were in India listening to that. And the reason or the reasoning behind it, I found out was that George felt that if he played it faster, that it would be too jarring to a Western audience. Nobody at that time was used to any of these. So what is this? You know, what's coming It sounds like it's from some weird Eastern place like India but he played it slowly so that gradually people would begin to appreciate the kind of sounds coming from that part of the world. I thought that was genius as a decision. It was just great, and I love the song. But it puts me in mind of all the times when in, in an individual's life, you travel abroad or someone comes to you and they make an impression on you, and it becomes a case of when cultures collide. So for someone like you, raised Presbyterian and then having deep questions about that, troubled by the implications of your faith as it was presented to you and as you saw it being practiced or not, you go to another part of the world, you encounter that, and something clicks. And then suddenly you feel like you have found home in a fundamental way. It's always kind of miraculous to me that in this big world, Cultures collide, and yet they intermarry to whatever extent. There was a book about uh, when Buddhism first became popular in America. Of course, it was around before then, but it became more sensational, if you will, in the 1950s and 1960s. And the book chronicling this movement was called When the Swans Came to the Lake. These influences find us. And it's thrilling, but at the same time, John, don't you find it perplexing?
3: Another great question, Gary. Well, perplexing, um, perhaps uh, at one time I did, but my experience, and we started to touch on this earlier, when I first encountered the Eastern teachings, I just went, wow, I am home. This speaks to me. This explains my experience. This explains life in a way that Western philosophies and religious paths never did. And, um, you know, I think that every single one of us has not just the ability, but an inner mechanism that recognizes truth, that recognizes reality. Um, it's one of the reasons that I think, you know, in Christianity, that wonderful line, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. If what you're embracing at truth as truth isn't setting you free, um, it probably isn't. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think that spiritual truth helps us to expand and grow more fully into who we already are and I think that the main thing that I've gotten from these teachings is that we are much more expansive, magnificent, enormous beings than we ever were allowed to think because we grew up in traditions that again you as you pointed out Gary made us feel guilty and small and full of shame and To me, at this point, I think guilt and shame are the farthest states from our inner divine nature. And when we're living in guilt and shame, we're really lost. And that is not to say that anything goes in life and you should be able to do anything and not feel guilt and shame. It just simply means that, again, we have inner guidance. We have an inner compass. And if we're drifting into guilt and shame, either we're doing something we shouldn't be doing or we're embracing a philosophy that is inherently destructive. So, um, yeah, I think the the, the cross currents of Eastern and Western energies and uh, experience now are so beautiful in the sense that I think As one of my teachers, Meher Baba said, the West has been dealing with an overabundance of materiality. And the East actually had been dealing with an overabundance of spirituality. And he was teaching in the 1940s and 50s and 60s that what was really being birthed in the 60s and hopefully going forward was an intermarriage of the two cultures. So that we could embrace more of the Eastern perception of spirituality and the Easterners could embrace our technological achievements and scientific achievements and things that could actually make life better. So that's, you know, it is an interesting and paradoxical blending But he was actually talking, Mayor Baba was actually talking about an intermarriage of the cultures, not just individuals.
1: I love the idea of the intermarriage of cultures, particularly at a time when, unfortunately, some of the loudest voices in the room are claiming that we are at heart and originally a Judeo-Christian, emphasis on the Christian, nation that that is our foundation and yet the founding fathers repeatedly said that is not true
3: yeah yeah well um you know that old saying those who do not learn history are destined to repeat it and somebody else a few years ago said those who do not learn who, those who do learn history are condemned to to watch those who don't learn history, repeat it.
0: <laughs> you know, isn't that the truth? Gary and I went to a Colonial Williamsburg, always a, a great visit. And I get the magazine that they put out, Trends and Traditions. And I always find wonderful articles in there about the founding of the country. And I juxtapose that with what is happening today. And, and so, while there's a, a certain segment of people that you know want to somehow return to the 1770s, um, the the idea that their thinking was not the way we are thinking in 2022, and there is an evolution, and you have to appreciate the evolution of the thinking, the evolution of the country, where we are today and 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 look at the founding and respect the founding for sure and not get too far from that but all the interpretations that have gone on have kind of put it askew from where it started and i i do find that interesting and i i like going back to the roots every once in a while and and hearing about what they were really saying and what they were really thinking and the the points that they were arguing about as they were setting up this democracy it's very interesting and then when I, when i hear what i suspect are people who have no idea what's in the constitution or the bill of rights and i just kind of slap my forehead and i think you know i wish they were better educated just know more be better informed
3: and i would say this you know that um spirituality has been the central focal point of my life for about 55 years now since i was 18. and um you know i have from a very early age realized the brilliant genius of the idea of absolute separation of church and state because what we were talking about earlier in terms of the, uh, what we might call uh, the self-righteousness that creeps into religious organizations and makes people think they have the only way and they have to impose it on other people. Why? You know, why? This is a country that was founded on the idea of allowing individual liberty, and that includes in religious practice. So I think that sometimes some of the people who are feeling complacent about voting um, should realize that there are people who are trying to take power in the country right now, who would very much like to eliminate our ability to study Buddhism and Hinduism and, and other spiritual paths here in America, because they're not part of that rigid Christian view which, as you point out, Gary, was not a part of our original founding principles and concept. So, um, yeah, I think it's an important issue for people to reflect on and decide what kind of country they want to live in.
0: And I hope they do. I I mean, we always talk about getting out the vote and getting out the vote. Um, You know, we've got yet another election coming up. And highly divisive and all kinds of uh, spitting at each other from various sides. I I think people do need to think about things and make an informed decision, not just a knee-jerk reaction. And, you know, living in Florida here, it seems like there's a lot of knee-jerk reaction as opposed to a lot of informed decision-making. And yeah. They'll they'll have to live with the consequences of that.
3: And that's something I think that that we've lost to a large degree. The more technologically advanced the culture becomes and the more fast-paced the society is, the less we're able to think about the consequences of our actions or our non-actions. You know, what's the long-term result of this going to be? That's something that people might really spend some time reflecting on. What I noticed because
1: (laughs) we have 800 cable channels, and I'm not sure that there is enough worthwhile information to take up that much space. There's endless transmission of information, and how ironic it is, bitterly so, that this is our communications landscape today, particularly in the cable universe. And yet, in schools, if the wrong people, in my opinion, are running the show or are on the school board, they go after the books. When people want to impose a point of view, they go after the books. That's as old as the hills.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So imagine if somebody decided that um, the Bhagavad Gita, which is my favorite book, it's like the Bible in Hinduism. And, um, if it was said, well, that can no longer be available in the United States. Wow. And that's a big possibility. That kind of thing is a possibility if some of the people who are looking to control the country are given that opportunity. And the hard thing about it is once that starts, it's very difficult to eradicate.
0: We're going to have to leave it there. John, thank you for visit number 13 with us. Lucky 13 for us today.
1: Visit 14 will pick up the threads of this very
3: conversation.
0: Yes, we will.
3: Beautiful. It's
0: ongoing. It's an ongoing conversation. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much. Much love to you both. And to you
1: and to your lovely Maureen. Stay healthy, buddy. Okay. Hey, you too. We will seek to do likewise. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll be back next Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here on AM 1150 with another show we hope you will like. Until then, have yourselves a great weekend and a great week ahead.